morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten speaking to you from Ottawa, Canada. As listeners of our show know, and now new listeners will learn, each and every week I have the pleasure of discussing with a guest scholar the weekly Torah portion. That section of the five books of Moses, which has been designated by Jewish tradition to be read each and every week, and the culmination of that will be at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, um, at which time on the festival of Simchat Torah, the Jewish community will read both the end of the fifth book of the Torah and the beginning of the first book of the Torah. This week, the Jewish community continues its exploration of the book of Exodus, our continuation of the journey through the desert. Our parasha is entitled in Hebrew, Ki Tisa, and usually is translated as when you take. Um, it begins in Exodus 30 and continues through the end of Exodus 34. Before we chat about some of the salient aspects of the Torah portion, let me give you an overview so that perhaps you have a context for our conversation. The people of Israel are wandering in the desert and are commanded each one to contribute half a shekel of silver to the sanctuary. Instructions are also given regarding the making of the sanctuary's water basin anointing oil, and incense. The Torah tells us that wise-hearted artisans, Bitzalel and Ohaleav, are placed in charge of the sanctuary's constructions, and then once again the people are commanded to keep the Sabbath. We then finish with our conversation about the construction of the sanctuary, and turn to what is fairly well known to most of you, either having uh, read the text yourself or heard the stories as a child. Moses does not return when expected from Mount Sinai, and the people make a golden calf and worship it. God proposes to destroy the errant nation, but Moses intercedes on their behalf. Moses then descends from the mountain carrying the tablets of the testimony, as they're called in the text, engraved with the Aserita de Broth, the Ten Commandments. Seeing the people dancing about the idol, he breaks the tablets, destroys the golden calf, and has the primary culprits put to death. He then returns to God to say, If you do not forgive them, blot me out from the book that you have written. God pardons the people, but says the effect of the sin will be felt for many generations. At first, God proposes to send his angels along with them, but Moses insists that God himself accompany the people to the promised land. The Torah portion concludes with the following episode. Moses prepares a new set of tablets ascends once again to the mountain where God reinscribes the covenant on the second tablets. On the mountain, Moses is granted a vision of the divine 13 attributes of mercy, which become part of the High Holy Day liturgy. So radiant is Moses' face upon his return that he must cover it with a veil, 
which he removes only to speak with God and to teach his laws to the people. As you can tell from this summary, this is uh, truly an eclectic Torah portion, moving from a uh, powerful narrative uh, to back and forth from a uh, building code description. With me this morning is Rabbi Martin P. Byfeld Jr., Rabbi Emeritus of Congregation Beth Ahaba in Richmond, Virginia. Rabbi Bielfeld has had a distinguished career as a rabbi, congregational rabbi. He uh, served as assistant rabbi at Congregation Rodef Shalom in Philadelphia, the oldest Ashkenazic synagogue in North America. He served as rabbi of Temple Beth Or in Raleigh, North Carolina. In addition, he served as rabbi of Knesset, Israel, in Allentown, Pennsylvania. In his role as temple as rabbi of Beth Ahaba in Richmond, he was the only fifth senior rabbi in the congregation's last 100 years and only the 10th in the congregation's history. He is certainly uh, active in Jewish communal life and in the rabbinic organization known as the Central Conference of American Rabbis. It's a pleasure to uh, welcome him back to Jewish faith and Jewish facts. Uh, good morning, Rabbi Byfield. Good morning, Rabbi Gard. Thank you for that kind introduction. Well, it could have gone on longer, but um, so um, I think you and I want to discuss the episode of the Golden Calf, perhaps more than the building of the sanctuary. If there's time, perhaps if it's important, we can return to it. But uh, let's begin with your take. What is this episode all about? Well, it, you know, it, it arrives so, so peculiarly in the, in the Torah. We're, we're in the midst of these boring chapters about building and, uh, and materials and things like that. And all of a sudden, I mean, it's the elephant in the room. You can't get, ar- you can't get around this. Uh, this passage, um, you know, the Torah is filled with with these. Let's call them seams. Um, it seems to be uh, going one direction, but then all of a sudden, it makes this either turn or detour. Um, and and there are, there's really several ways to look at it. Uh, you know, in in modern times, modern times, we know that one of the ways to look at it is that it, it helps us understand uh, the layers of the creation of the Torah, the the different uh, the different sources that went into the creation of the Torah, and um, and there are some there are some scholars. Who who think that this was a way of uh, of putting Aaron in his place, as it were, um, because Aaron represented a, a a path which the Jewish people um, ended up not taking. Um, but um, but I think we have to. I think we we want it. it I think it's more productive. To see the golden calf 
as an opportunity to uh, to wonder about what it must have been like uh, being being out in the desert, uh, tasting tasting freedom essentially for the first time. I mean, this happened very quickly after the people left Egypt, and it's not like they had they've had they've had these forty years to think about what it means to be a free people. They've got a couple of months before Moses schleps them to this place and then disappears. And if I were in the crowd down below, I'd wonder what happens in this guy. Uh, I guess we can all remember that the people of Israel um, leave Egypt really um, with Moses as a symbol of their liberation. I mean, the text tells us that they're going to serve the God of the Israelites. But God is invisible. Moses, the only tangible uh, statement they have of God's presence, and you're right, then Moses ascends to the mountain and is lost to them. Now, you've you've told us a couple of really important things. Uh, We'll get back to God's. Let's do God's invisibility later. Okay. But let's not miss that because that's really important. You know, looking, reading, reading the reading the text, looking at it, um, they're not asking. The people now are not really making so much a theological statement as at first glance we might think they're making. It's I, idolatry is what they knew, having lived in Egypt. Egypt is filled with all of all of these statues. Um, and, uh, and the pantheon of gods was, was important in Egypt, in Egyptian life. Um, so whether the, whether the Hebrews were, um, were polytheists or not, it's what they, they, it's what they knew about and it was familiar to them. But they're not asking, they don't ask Aaron. They're not talking to Aaron about having another god. They're not rejecting. Um, the God that Moses has introduced them to. What they ask for is someone to lead them. They don't want to be left out in the desert to starve to death and not know where they're going. They need a a leader. And I think that that's an important point. Uh, we We make a big deal about this, about this idolatry. Right. The text is very clear. It says, make us a God who shall uh, go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know where he is. And don't we all want leaders, right? We all, we want leaders. We need leaders, especially, I mean, who can, this was a vast number of people. It's not like it was, you know, it was a, a large dinner party at an extended family. This was a huge number of people. They needed they needed a leader, and they had thrown all of their eggs in one basket into this guy Moses. That they didn't, you know, Moses had not really been one of them. Right, right. They Moses uh, Aaron was raised as a slave, but Moses wasn't. Moses was raised with privilege. And by and by this time, Aaron is already identified 
as having this uh, role as the uh, chief um, attendant at the sacrificial cult. Right. And what do we what do we make of Aaron? What what could he be thinking? Does he is he is he does he have a coup in mind? Right. Is this his chance to take over? Or is he buying time? Is he really, does he really want or think Moses is coming back and he just wants to, you know, get, get something, get something done until Moses reappears? Is, does he lack courage? Uh, can he not stand up and say, no, 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 we can't do this? Uh, is he a lousy, does he, is he just a lousy leader? Uh, who just gives in to the whims of the people, the demands of the people, or is he just trying to keep them happy for a while? Uh, it's hard to know what Aaron, Aaron really, uh, he comes off pretty badly in this, in this scene. And I think the, the, I think the writer wants us, the Torah wants us to, uh, to have a harsh view of Aaron as a result of this. And you, and you've suggested that that may be the result of the layered uh, approach to the authorship of the text. That's correct. You know, the, the, uh, we know, for example, that, that uh, historically, we know that the Hebrew, that the Israelite people um, divide after many years of their king, of, of having kings and living in a united kingdom. And there's a the north and there is a south. And the, and, the cow was a symbol of of the northern kingdom, as it were, and perhaps this is the writer's way. After these distinctions, uh, you know, of, of trying to understand these distinctions and putting a little dig in and saying, "Listen, we're not going to fo- we're not going to follow the traditions of the of the breakaway northerners." We're going to follow the traditions that that the surviving kingdom, the Southerners, um, practiced. But you know, to us, uh, I mean, the, the seam is there, and we can unravel, or the onion is there. We can peel away the layers. But I think it's better to take this incident uh, on its on its face. Um, I think we get more out of the, this incident by taking it on its face and not seeing it as a historical uh, scene in the, in the Torah. Well, if, if we take it on face value, as you've suggested, then we take it as the Israelites are asking for a tangible leader. Moses filled that role, uh, took them out of Egypt through the uh, sea of reeds, the splitting, the miracle at the sea, fed them manna and quails, brought them to Sinai, and now disappears. Right. And I think that people are afraid. I think people are afraid. What do we do? Uh, and I think, you know, the Torah is always talking to us. It's not just talking to, to people back then. It's always talking to us. And it's always I think the Torah wants us to think about, well, what should we do when we're afraid? Uh, are we going to, uh, are we going to build, build the golden calf when we're afraid? Or, and this is interesting now, what do we do? Are we going to be, 
we're going to do a golden calf incident when we're afraid, or do we do a tabernacle incident? It's right in the middle of the building of the tabernacle, which is meant to be a place where uh, uh, to represent God's presence among uh, among the people. Uh, do we want to bring God's presence into the world, or do we want to bring the golden calf into the world? What do we do when we're afraid? I think is a is a good question that the Torah wants us to grapple with. And of course, we know what the Torah would have us do, and we know how often we fail. Uh, I guess what you introduce is the um, psychological insight that the Torah offers to the reader. When confronted with fear, do you uh, turn to that which appears to be the easy way out, an idol that's inanimate um, and really um, is um, nothing that can speak to you, only its presence and in the story itself is destroyed pretty easily? Or, as you've suggested our listeners consider, do you turn to the sacred tabernacle that is intended to bring you closer to the source uh, of blessing, uh, which in the Torah is defined as uh, the ineffable deity? And you wanted to return to that, so perhaps that's a good uh, way to segue into talking about the sanctuary is the symbol of the deity uh, on earth. Correct. And isn't it interesting that Jewish tradition has it that we gathered up the shattered pieces of the tablets, okay, and put them into the put them into the tabernacle. Okay, um, so I think yes, the Torah wants us, the Torah wants us to do tabernacle and not golden calf. It must be easier said than done. Okay, and we have in tradition in, in tradition we have this figurative, although it's a tangible reminder of the past, and as the the, the Jewish people. Um, honor the past, and that's part of part. That's that's crucial to our tradition. And we honor the past. We don't disregard the past. We don't necessarily do what we did before. But the broken pieces of the ta- of the of those tablets, which they carried around with them in the which they put in the tabernacle, carried it around in the desert. They'll put it in the temple. In Jerusalem, always serves as a reminder uh, that we should not ever forget the past. We need to understand the past. Uh, don't make the same mistakes that we made before, but to learn from the past and but always, I think, move forward. Do you have a sense that tradition wanted these broken shards? Uh, to be a reminder of the fact that there were no remnants of the golden calf. I mean, when Moses uh, destroys the golden calf, it's burnt, and the ashes are um, infused. And they drink them. 
right? The leaders are forced to drink these ashes. Um, and so there's nothing uh, physical to remind people of the calf, only the broken shards of the Ten Commandments or of the tablets. Right, right. Well, uh, yes, I think that's correct. Um, uh, I'm not sure that it matters what the shards what the shards were of, as it were. I'm not sure it matters that they have to be of the of the Ten Commandments rather than the calf. I think the important thing is that they carried around symbols of the past, of what had of what had happened. The shattered, the shattered pieces of the tablet uh, are meant to remind us of what we did in the desert and what we didn't have to do in the desert. Uh, but we did anyway. And I think that it reminds us of our humanity. You know, that we are always, we are always faced with these choices constantly, whether, whether they're choices that we face as individuals or whether they're, they're choices that we make as a, as a people. Um, but we're constantly, constantly faced with choices. And, uh, I don't think the Torah wants us to relive the past. Uh, without thinking it all through. I don't think the past is meant to have, you know, uh, to use kind of a trite expression of veto on what we do. Uh, but, and, you know, I guess this, you know, you know that I, that I was a, a history student. Uh, history to me is crucial if we want to understand who we are, why we are what we are but to give us insight into how we should be tomorrow. And so I suppose the tablets, in fact, the retelling of this story is all about preparing the Israelites for what the future is. Yes. Rather than the past of slavery, that the journey to the promised land is going to be filled with incidents that you should remember and learn from. Yes. And I think even more than that, even more than that, I think if we if we go from looking at chapter thirty, whatever it is, chapter thirty-two of Exodus, and go all the way up to forty thousand feet suddenly, right, really fast, we're we have a view of we have a view of life of starting. This is from the Torah now, from the slavery in Egypt. To the promised land. Now, from the Torah's perspective, we never get to the promised land. From the Torah's perspective, life is in the desert, and life, life is has high points and low points. Life is no, it's not. Life is not a song and a dance. Um, it is filled with moments that we regret. It is filled with sadness and heartache, but it is also filled with joy and opportunities to make, uh, to enjoy ourselves, to be happy and to make the world better, which is what I think the Torah wants us to do. It it wants us to understand that life is in the desert, that this is where we human beings live. We are no longer the slaves, meaning Having, having the 
every moment of our day um, uh, determined for us as a slave would have or as an infant would have. And at the other end of the spectrum is the is the promised land, um, you know, utopia. Well, we're never going to get to you, utopia from the tourist perspective. We're stuck in the desert. And maybe the image is not desert, which conveys to so many people white sand, but what the Torah calls Bamidbar, the wilderness. The wilderness. That's unformed. Um, and that wilderness is composed of so many different topographical dynamics. In the desert, we don't think of trees, but in the wilderness, we have trees. In the desert, it's uh, uniform symbolically, but the wilderness, uh, we know that there's water, there's dry, there's rocks, there's mountains, um, and following on your image that life is like wandering in the wilderness. Right. I think that's a, that's a very good point. And the direction that we take is up to us, um, and we regard we rely upon our leaders to help us make those decisions and to lead us carefully. Um, but we again, we always have these choices. We are faced with these choices. That's what freedom is about. Freedom is about being faced with choices and choosing choosing a way that enhances life, that respects life. Um, that respects other people and other people's freedoms uh, that we have, uh, all of this just from this calf. You know, you talked about choices. Um, we don't have much time left, but Moses uh, forces God to make a choice. Uh, God wants to destroy the Israelites, and uh, Moses says to him, um, it's me, it's they or me, in a sense. And I think, and I think that that helps us understand why Moses is exalted as the honored leader rather than Aaron. Um, Moses fights for the people rather than gives in to the people. Moses wants to teach the people and to, uh, to bring them on, uh, to, to encourage them. And, you know, I think he takes advantage of his situation. And we haven't we haven't had a chance to talk about this episode up on top of the mountain. And we're not going to have a chance. <laughs> My guest this morning has been Rabbi Martin Byfield, uh, Rabbi Emeritus of Temple uh, Beth Ahaba in Richmond, Virginia. I want to thank him for helping us understand or beginning to understand this very important episode in the Torah. You can hear our conversation on CHRI 99.1 FM, or you can download it as a podcast on the CHRI.ca website, or anywhere you get your favorite podcast, you can download our conversation. For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten, wishing you shalom and a good day.